Amen. Take your Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Couldn't help but think while he was singing that, Brother Nato, he sang that song, I'm telling you. And um, it's just the way that it worked out. Um, Miss Loida and the rest of the family had gotten COVID around the same time that he did. And even though they had been past their 14 days and all that other stuff, they wouldn't let them go up to the hospital. And um, so he was... Um, he was laying there in the hospital and uh, in ICU, and there in ICU, all the rooms, um, at least at, at um, wasn't St. Mary's, was St. Mary's, yeah, uh, all the rooms up there are glass, you know, and so you can see into the room and everything else, and, and they let me go up there. They, they wouldn't let me go into the room because he had COVID and all that stuff, but um, it was just, uh, you know, it was such a, such a testimony. They had his songs, like all the songs that he had sung for all those years playing, um, uh, on an um, iPad, like they were on a, on a Zoom call, a video call with him, and so they were able to see into the room, but only through a screen, but they had all those songs playing, and uh, just to hear him singing, and, and uh, I know it affected the nurses, it affected the doctor, and, and a lot of them said stuff to me about it when they came out, you know, and, um, but no more night, I asked, what, a, what a thought, what a, what a tremendous thought, and um, I'm looking forward to that time when we can be in heaven together. Well, Joshua chapter 6, I'm not going to read this whole passage because as we go through the message this morning, I'm going to pull out some different passages to you, but to give you a little background to where we are here, Israel had just crossed the Jordan River. They, they prepared themselves spiritually up to this point. They followed God's orders to the letter. Now, they had just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of disobedience, but you remember that everyone who was 20 years, eight, 20 years of age and up was killed in the wilderness. So all of those who were left there were kids who were 19 years old and under. They hadn't seen uh, the, uh, the burden and the hardships and all of those things that had happened in Egypt. They hadn't been through all of those same kind of things, but they knew that God was giving them this promised land, and they finally are moving into that place. They're finally, they've, God parted the waters of the Jordan River, and they crossed on dry ground the exact same way that he had parted the Red Sea, and they walked on dry ground there. Now they're ready to begin this conquest of the promised land. They're ready to claim for themselves the land, as the Bible said, that flowed with milk and honey. They're excited. I can imagine that, you know, they had heard the stories. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that were left that were over the age of 20 that went into the wilderness and came out. And I'm sure that Joshua and Caleb had told stories not only to the children of Israel, but to their families, and, and stories had spread about the land that they had seen. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were spies that had gone into the promised land. They saw it with their own eyes. They knew what they were getting into, and I'm sure they were excited as now finally, and just for a moment, try to put yourself into the shoes of the average Israelite soldier. For most of these men, Jericho was the first city that they had ever seen that was surrounded by huge walls. They'd been wandering in the wilderness, remember, and they were 19 years old or younger when they went in. They had never been in battle before. They had never faced a conflict. They had never seen a city, much less a city like Jericho. And here, for most of these men, they probably were just amazed at, at, at the absolute impossibility of taking a city like Jericho, especially for the first city that they were going to take. But Jericho is known as the oldest city in the world. In, in Joshua's day, it was surrounded by a system of two massive stone walls. And get this, this is kind of, this is hard for us to comprehend, especially in a day when you didn't have modern 
equipment and modern machinery and things like that. But the outer wall of Jericho was six feet thick and 20 feet high. Now, that's impressive itself, but that's just the outer wall. The inner wall was 12 feet thick and 30 feet high. I mean, think about that. That's huge. 12 feet is, is about to the middle of this auditorium from the wall to here. I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge wall and 30 feet high. This auditorium, I think, is about 25 or 30 feet wide. So maybe, maybe just the width, maybe only the width of this section here, you know. But 12 feet, think about that. That's an amazing feat. But here between the walls, they had a guarded walkway that was about 15 feet wide. So if you think about how thick these walls are, all right, you have, you have six feet thick, and then you have a 15-foot walkway, and then another 12 feet thick. You're talking about huge, huge walls. Israel's problem was that they, they had a city to conquer, but there were some extremely huge walls in the way. And you can imagine, I mean, I, I know that I would just be in awe if I saw something like that. You know, I, when we were over in, in Europe, I went over there with Bill John a couple years ago and we went to Romania, and we went to one of these big castles. And I'd never seen anything. I mean, you see it in pictures, but when you actually see it in person, I mean, it's just amazing how massive this thing is. And that's just, that's just one castle. That's not these walls with a giant city inside of it. I can imagine how the Israelites must have felt. But how does that relate to us? Well, I'll tell you this. We're living in days of battle and spiritual struggle. And for a lot of us, when we look at the spiritual battle that's in front of us, it's, it's impossible. Not just the battle that we live in our lives, but the evil that we're facing. And you think about, oh, the, the, the ultimate goal is to see this nation come back to God. And you look at that, and it's just an impossibility. It's never going to happen. There's no possible way that those walls are going to come down and God is going to reign supreme again in the United States. That's the way that we look at it. We need to know how to fight. We need to know that God is able to give us the victory. We need to know how to follow him to that victory. And that's exactly what the Israelites had to learn. Just like Israel faced these, these mighty walls of Jericho, you and I face these walls, these obstacles in our, in our own spiritual lives, but also in spirituality and Christianity as a whole in this, in this nation. And I think the battle for Jericho very closely resembles our spiritual battles. Which, by the way, we sing these songs about crossing the Jordan. And we talk about crossing the Jordan as if we're entering heaven. And spiritually speaking, I don't think that's correct. Biblically speaking, I don't think that's correct, you know. Uh, I don't have to cross Jordan alone. And they're, they're great songs, and I understand where the people are coming from when they're writing these and singing these things. But... There's no battles in heaven. There's no fighting in heaven. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that we're going to have to face. I think the promised land is the victorious Christian life, Amen. right? We cross the Jordan River. That's the, that's the, that is the, the allusion to accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You cross the Jordan River and you become a Christian doesn't mean that all your problems go away. Well, you're still in the promised land. You still, have that, you still have that promise of eternal life, and you still have the promise of victory, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to face battles. doesn't mean that you're not going to face struggles. Doesn't mean doesn't mean that you're not going to come up against things that you think are impossible to overcome. We don't see that in heaven, but we do see that in the Christian life. And just like God promised Israel the victory didn't mean that they were just going to walk in. Everything was going to lay over for them, right? They still had to trust. They still had to fight. They still had to conquer. They still had to follow and that's exactly what we have to do in our Christian life. Sometimes what we're told to do doesn't make sense. But if God's in it, and if God's told us to do it, and it's his plan, then he's going to work it out. 
So what I want to look at this morning is five parallels between the battle for Jericho and winning the victory in our Christian life. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this passage here in Joshua chapter 6. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the time that we can spend together in your word. I pray that it would be profitable to us. And God, I pray that we'd make some decisions this morning that would help us to win the victory in our Christian lives for you. And we'll thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is this, and we find that in Joshua chapter 6, in verse number 3. And Joshua is telling the, telling the people what's going to happen. Ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priest shall blow with his trumpets. Down in verse number 13, it's exactly what happened. And the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns, ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them but the reward came after the ark of the Lord the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets and the second day they compassed the city once returned to the camp so they did six days and it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and encompassed the city after the same manner seven times only on that day did they compass uh, they compassed the city Seven times. They were to do this once a day for six days together, and then the seven times on the seventh day. And they did it. The, the Bible told, God told them, this is what you're going to do, and later on we see that that's exactly what they did. But God could have caused the walls of Jericho to fall down by them circling around it once. God could have caused the walls of Jericho to fall down without them circling around it at all. If he wanted to, he could have said, you walk up to the walls and they're going to fall over. But he didn't. He said, I want you to walk around once every single day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. You think about how, you know, they must have felt walking around the city of Jericho 13 times. Why 13? Why not 10? Why not 8? Why not 3? Why not 28? Why, why 13? And I don't know exactly why God picked that number, but they had to wait patiently for the Lord. And they went around day one and day two. And day three, and day four, and day five, and day six, and day seven. And they're just walking around the city of Jericho. They thought they had come into Canaan. Their time was very precious. They had a great amount of work before them. They knew they had a lot to accomplish. But they had to linger so many days around Jericho, seeming to do nothing, not making any progress. I think a better way to say this, the Christian life is a life of routine. That's the first point. The Christian life is a life of routine. But I think even maybe a better way to say that is Christian life is a life of patience. Christian life is a life of patience. We're not going to see victories every single day of the magnitude that we see here. God's promised us the victory in our Christian life. But just like the victory in Jericho, those victories have to come in God's timing. Somebody said this a long time ago, God may be slow, but he's always on time. He may not get there when you think you want him to be there. He may not answer the way that you feel like you want him to answer and in the time that you want him to answer. God may be slow, but he's always on time. Those who serve God can well afford to wait. Because I promise you that you wouldn't want to be anywhere else other than in God's timing. Well, we're, we've been praying for this for so long, how come God won't answer that request? Well, if we don't see an answer now, then what's going to happen? It's going to be too late. Not according to God's timing. Not according to God's plan. The walls may not fall down by the sixth day, and you might be getting discouraged because you don't see that movement, and you don't see the answers, but wait on God. The walls are going to fall down in God's 
timing. The problem with a lot of Christians is that they're only willing to work and follow God when they think that success is inevitable. Well, I'll, I'll pray now because, yeah, we got, we got this thing about ready to be answered. Let me get in and let me pray on it, right? Well, the same thing with this building, right? It, it, it gets long when we're, when we're going through this process. Sounded early on that it was going to be a matter of just a few days and we were going to be in it. Everybody was excited to pray about it. Let's pray about it. God's getting ready to give us this building. But it's drawing out and drawing out. How are you still praying about it? Are you still praying about it? Or have you said, well, now, now it doesn't really look like there's a victory right around the corner, so I guess I'm just going to wait until there does look like a victory right around the corner, then I'll start praying about it again, right? We do that a lot in our Christian life. We do that with a lot of things. Oh, I'll, I'll pray about it because it looks like we're going to get an answer next week, and then that answer doesn't come. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll pray a little bit longer, but God, you better answer this or I'm, I'm just not going to pray about it anymore, Right? And we expect that, oh, God's going to answer. You better answer this in my timing or I'm just going to stop praying. Why? It's not our timing. It's God's timing that we ought to be praying for and praying about. There's, there are those who are here now. Everybody that's here now is, knows the battle of being a small church, right? Would it be easy to, to have a nice, big, beautiful building with 500 people coming and all kinds of ministries and everything just, you know, clicking on all cylinders, and oh, I want to get plugged into this, and I want to get plugged into that, and I want to do this, and I want to do that. All right, everything's there. Go take it, right? That's the kind of church that I grew up in. Anything you wanted to do, you pretty much had it. It was there. It was available to you. It's not that way in a small church, right? We're growing. We don't have a big, massive, beautiful building, and I don't know if we ever will. If God wants it for us, then great. If he doesn't, then, then great. But we, we need his timing. We need his plan, and of course, uh, you know, it would be easier to join a church that had a, had a beautiful building, a full staff, all kinds of ministries, anything you wanted for your family, right? It'd be easy to do that. But you're here in the trenches. You're here when it's not easy. And I can tell you this, as we wait on God, he's going to bless us. Amen. And you're here at a time when we are on the cusp of seeing God do some great things in this church. You're here when we get to see what God's going to do with this building. I don't know what it's going to be, but you're going to be able to be here and be a part of it and see it, Right? And there's going to be people who come along 10, 15 years from now who come into a church that's already established and has been around for 20 years. They're not going to know the battles that took place to get to this. They're not going to know how hard it was waiting for God to bring these things about. And, and, I, and I, there's always going to be things that we are waiting on God for, no matter if we're 25 or 250 years old. There's always going to be things that we're waiting on God for. But this is an exciting time. This is, God has every single person in this church here for a reason right now. He wants you to be a part of it, and you are being a part of it. But how involved are you in the praying process? How involved are you in the patience process? How involved are you in the waiting process? Uh, Jesus Christ is a great example of one who waited on God and God's timing. In fact, turn over to Lamentations chapter 3. One commentator said it like this. How the Savior waited during those 30 long years before he began his work. Not less patiently did Christ wait after his work commenced. He knew how to pass through the midst of wrathful men who sought to cast him from the brow of the hill at Nazareth on the very day when he began his ministry, and yet not to be discouraged. He could endure to say, the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head, and not only to say that, but to feel the bitterness of such rejection as none but he could feel it, and yet to continue his silent and holy service. He could bear to know that neither did his brethren believe on him and still work. 
He could see one apostle, uh, one apostle waiting in weakness to deny him and another in malice already on the way to betray him. And then, glancing back over his apparently fruitless ministry, say to the eleven, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. He could enter into the agony of Gethsemane, expire amid the hootings of a nation who crowned their rejection of him on Golgotha, pass into the darkness of the tomb, and emerging thence, say even to the disciples who had all forsaken him and fled, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Though despised and rejected of men, he commanded them to wait for the promise of the Father in the very place where men would have said failure was most apparent. And when that promise of the Father came, they were to arise and preach the gospel among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What a thought. What a thought. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse number 6 says this. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Somebody discovered this written on the, on the wall of a prison in a Nazi concentration camp. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. And I believe in God even when he is silent. Most Christians stop believing in God when he's silent. I don't see God moving, so he must not be there. I don't see him moving, so he must not be working on my problems. I prayed. I prayed three times and God never answered my prayer. I'm done. I prayed for a whole week and God didn't answer my prayer. I'm done. Right? Wait patiently. The Christian life is a life of routine. You just do what God wants you to do day in and day out. If that means going and marching around the walls of Jericho on day one, and going and marching again on day two, and going and marching again on day three, four, five, six, and seven, then do it. And just wait patiently on God's timing. He's working. He's working just because you can't see him. Doesn't mean he's not. Here's the second thing I want you to see. And go back to Joshua chapter six. In fact, maybe you want to keep a bookmark in there or something. We're going to be coming back to it. But Joshua chapter 6 and verse number 10 says this, And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice. Neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout. Then shall ye shout. Christian life is a life of discipline. All the people were commanded to be silent. They were not supposed to say a word. They were not supposed to make a noise with their voice. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been? Especially for the ladies. That took discipline for me to say that because I didn't really want to, but I made myself do it. The Christian life is a life of discipline. They were not to make a sound. Could you imagine how that must have been? Walking around the walls of Jericho and somebody steps on your foot. Can't say anything, right? Somebody shouted and they all start shouting. And the, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm joking here, but think about that. Think about the discipline that it took for them. I mean, that's, these soldiers, they're on a march. Most of the time, soldiers on a march are just having a conversation with each other, right? They're talking about anything and everything. You know how it is when you're hiking or doing whatever else. You just, you just talk, you carry on a conversation. They had to walk around the walls of Jericho and not make a noise. That took a lot of discipline. The Christian life takes discipline to live it in a way that's pleasing to God as well. It takes discipline to pray. It takes discipline to sit down and read your Bible. 
takes discipline to say no to temptation, right? The devil's going to try to get you to do those things that you know you shouldn't do. He's going to try to get you to drink. He's going to try to get you to smoke. He's going to try to get you to say things that you shouldn't say. He's going to try to get you to go places you shouldn't go. He's going to try to get you to involve yourself in things that you shouldn't get yourself involved in. The list goes on and on. And God condemned the nation of Israel right before he brought on the judges, right? Because he said, and, they, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the easy thing to do, right? If I feel like doing it, I'm going to do it. That's what most Christians do. That's what most of the world does, but that's what a lot of Christians do in their lives. If it feels good, do it, right? That's the easy way out. In fact, I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is the point that we need to get to in our lives if we're going to live a life of discipline. I mean, think about what it would, take, what it would have taken for one of those people to just say a word. One person in the whole army of Israel to just decide, you know what? This is stupid. Why are we walking around this dumb city making a fool out of ourselves and not saying a word? And I can imagine, after probably day three, four, five, maybe even day six, there were probably people, soldiers, up on that wall laughing and making fun of these Israelites, walking in circles, not saying a word, right? And most of us are so hot-headed that we would have had to say something back, right? They had to take the discipline to not say a word. They, they couldn't answer their scoffers, right? They couldn't talk amongst themselves and how, how dumb this is that we're doing this. This doesn't make any sense. What kind of military strategy is this, right? But that's what most of us get to doing in our Christian life. What kind of, what kind of Christian life is this? I can't do anything that, that, that I want to do. What's the point of living this Christian life anyway? Right? And we start to, to murmur and complain and everything else. Look what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. It's easy to let that sin stay there. It's easy to partake in things that you shouldn't be partaking in. That's the easy way out. The discipline that comes in a Christian life is when you say, I really want to do that, but I'm not going to do it, Amen. right? It, it, you've, you've been on diets before, probably hundreds of them, right? The easiest thing to do is to say, man, I want that piece of cake. You know what? Forget the diet today. I'm eating that piece of cake, right? The hard part is to say no. The hard part is to say no. That's discipline. And we're, a lot of times, we're a lot more willing to do that with a, a pound hanging off of our body than we are to do it with our spiritual life, right? I can say no to my flesh. I don't need that piece of cake. I don't have to eat that thing. Oh, that sin. It looks so good, right? You ever seen the Jungle Book, the little cartoon version of the Jungle Book years and years ago, and that snake comes down there, and his eyes start spinning around in circles, and the... The little, the little uh, Mowgli, his eyes start doing the same thing, and he's like, just tell me what I need to do. That's the way a lot of people act with, with the devil. The devil brings this stuff into their lives, and they just start saying, oh, it looks so good. I can't stop myself, right? Have some discipline in your spiritual life. Say no to the devil. Say yes to God. Show him that you love him. Show him that you want to serve him. Say no sometimes. 
You don't have to turn over there, but I think 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 5 sums up everything. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Amen. You don't ever do anything without thinking about it first, right? How many times have you heard somebody say, why did you do that? I just didn't think about it first. Yes, you did. You just didn't think about the consequences first, but you thought about it first. Right? We don't do anything without thinking about it. Try to make yourself not think about something, and you start thinking about it even more, right? If we would bring every thought to the obedience of Christ, then everything else would just fall in place the way that it should. Have some discipline. The Israelites did, and God blessed the discipline. And the Christian life is a life of discipline. I want you to see this, number three. Look at verse number 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And we read these verses already, but they did exactly. In verse 13, 14, 15, 16, they did exactly what God commanded them to do. Christian life is a life of obedience. Can you, can you imagine how the Israelites must have felt following these commands? By any military standard, this was absurd. You don't, you don't do that. Okay, if you're going to surround a building, you know, surround the walls of a city or something like that, but you're aiming at it. You're, you're on the offensive, right? You're prepared to attack. You're not walking in circles around it, being vulnerable to anything that they wanted to do. And I don't know how far spread out they were away from the city. I mean, it's not like they were standing right underneath of them necessarily, but can you hear the scoffing of the people inside Jericho? This is the great army of Israel? This is how they intend to come and capture our city? Don't they see these walls? What good do they think walking around in circles is going to do? How absurd that marching would have seemed even to probably most of the Israelites. And I think probably that if the, if the dividing of the, the Jordan River wasn't so fresh on their minds, there probably would have been another rebellion. And there probably would have been a lot of Israelite soldiers who would have said, I don't know where you got this strategy from, but this is not military strategy. I'm gone. They at least had enough sense to hang around, see what God was going to do. But the process of besieging the city in that way was exactly adapted to accomplish the purposes of God. Because had the nation of Israel marched on Jericho and conquered that city because of their military might and everything else, then there would have been a lot of nations who thought, you know what, they're strong, but we've got a, we've got a better military than they do. We've got better strategies than they do. We can beat these Israelites. But when you go into a nation and word spreads that they walked around our walls 13 times and they fell down, they know that it's not the Israelites. They know who's behind that. And that did so much more for the cause of the Israelites than anything they could have ever done on their own. God was not waiting all the time to collect his energy for the overthrow of these few walls. God, a lot of times God tries his servants by commanding them to do something that just doesn't seem, by the world's standards, to make sense. But you do it God's way. You obey God's command. You prove that you're willing to follow him and he does miracles beyond what you or the rest of the world can even ask or think, right? He was not waiting to gather up his power for the destruction of the Canaanites. He could have spoken and destroyed that city. He could have 
cast out all the idols and everything else. He could have done it with a word. The Lord had a more exalted war. His battle was with human hearts. He was seeking to overcome the Israelites rather than the Canaanites. And once he got a hold of the Israelites, once he knew that he had them, then he could, they could take on, through his power, the rest of the nations. We go back to the idea of patience. Sometimes God s- commands us to stand still and just see the salvation of the Lord. And it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. We think we have to get out there and make it happen rather than waiting on God. And I'll tell you, I know I keep coming back to this idea, but this is, this is, the, this is what is facing our church right now, is finding a building, figuring out where we're going to go, understanding what it is that God wants us to do. The easiest thing is to just go out there and take something, right? Go out there and buy something. How hard can it possibly be? But we want what God wants for us. And obviously, obviously, he's teaching us patience, waiting on him, figuring out exactly what it is that he wants us to do. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse number 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. See, had one of those Israelites finally had enough and said that marching was ridiculous, decided to charge, not only would he probably have lost his life, but Israel probably would have failed in their mission as well. God's not looking for us to say, but, but, look what we did for you. No, he's saying, wait, obey, and watch. That's what he wants. When the Lord is fighting for us, it's better to let all men see that the battle is not ours. It's better to let him see that it's his. And it's the best for us to obey his commands. Christian life is a life of routine. Christian life is a life of discipline. The Christian life is a life of obedience. Number four, the Christian life is a life of faith. Keep your finger there in Joshua chapter 6, but go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Because believe it or not, the nation of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho is in the faith chapter in the Bible. You think of all these great men, Joshua, Moses, Abraham, Daniel, all these others that are mentioned in what's called the Hall of Faith, right? These Israelites are mentioned in the Hall of Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Whose faith? To some extent, it was the faith of, faith of the people. They had to follow. They had to obey. But I think it was the faith of Joshua and Caleb. Mark chapter 11 and verse 23 says, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Think about the magnitude of that. The greatest prayer warrior that's ever lived, I've never seen them say, we need this mountain to move, and the mountain picks up and moves, right? But God said, that's a simple thing. That's not even a hard thing. If you need that mountain to move, you say it, and you pray it, and you believe it in faith, and God will make it happen. There's a lot of other principles, too. I want a million dollars. I'm going to pray it, I'm going to believe it, and uh, boom, I got a million dollars, right? You got to pray in God's will, and that mountain needs to be moved for a reason, But a mountain needing to be moved is nothing for God when it comes to his power and his ability. You need a church building? Pray it. Believe it. That's something that God wants for us too. He's going to make it happen. 
You need somebody to, to, to be healed in your family? Hey, sometimes God does not answer our request. Sometimes he heals them in a different way, right? But you pray and you believe it and God's going to do it. There's a lot of other things like that too. And again, you know, I mean, people die. God's got a day that he's planned for everybody to, to leave this earth and you're not going to live to be 190 years old, you know? I pray, my grandfather was 182 and I prayed that God would save him and he didn't, right? I mean, things happen and your life goes on and so on. God's not going to answer every single request the way that we want that request to be answered. But we pray in faith. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and ye shall have them. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's not, oh, you, you declare it and it's going to happen. You pray in faith. You pray believing, you pray in God's will, and he will make it happen. But we have to pray in faith. To, to the citizens of Jericho, I'm sure that the actions of the Israelites must have seemed just incomprehensible. It didn't make any sense to them. But God's people were being trained in patience. They were being trained in obedience. And they were being trained in humility. Can you imagine how humbling that must have been for these big monsters of men? decked out in their military gear, ready to go take a city, and here they are, <laughs> marching around the city. Can you imagine the humility that it must have felt for these guys to do it God's way? But you know what? Laugh all you want to. You only got a couple days left on this earth. We're following God's way. And if that requires humility, if that requires patience, if that requires obedience, then so be it. I'm doing it God's way. One pastor said it this way, when God spake all things into being, the everlasting silence remained unbroken. No stir was seen, no commotion felt. Starting into life of 10,000 times 10,000 million of angels from the deep abyss of eternity created no noise. Creation of millions upon millions of worlds by, by the fiat of his matchless power was done in noiselessness and peace. See, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It doesn't have to be this great fanfare. It doesn't have to be this, look what God did for us, right? Look at how great we are at praying. Look at how great we are at waiting. Look at how great we are at humility, right? We don't need all that. We just need to have a faith and an obedience and a patience in God's timing and in God's plan. Man may need commotion and disturbance to assure him that work is being done. Silence is sufficient for God. And that's exactly how he had those Israelites marching around that city of Jericho. Just march around in silence. Let everybody else talk. Let them say what they want to say. God's working. God's doing exactly what he wants to do. Let me give you this lastly. Christian life is a life of routine. It's a life of discipline. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of faith. And lastly... Christian life can be a life of victory. Amen. Back in Joshua chapter 6 and verse number 20. And they followed it, everything exactly the way that God wanted it to be followed. And then verse number 20, we see this. So the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Here you have a 12-foot wall, you have a 15-foot walkway, you have another 30-foot wall, and those walls fell down so flat that they could just walk right into the city. 
I don't think there was anything left, and there's not really any evidence of, left of the walls of Jericho today. I mean, you'd certainly think that something would be there if you had a 30-foot by 12-foot wall, right? Certainly, you would think that there would something be there if you had a 15-foot walkway in between those two walls. Certainly, something would be there if you had another 12-foot wall that was 20 feet high, right? Something would be there, but those walls fell down so flat that those, those Israelites didn't even have to climb. They, didn't have, they just walked right in and took whatever they wanted to take. Probably killed a lot of people in the process. The guards that were standing there watching the Israelites march around day after day. Others that were crowding around trying to see what was going on with the Israelites. All of them. All of them. They fell down with the walls. What they trusted to do for defense proved to be their destruction. And now there's a lot of, a lot of people who will stand behind their evolutionary theories. There's a lot of people who will stand behind their hatred of God as, as their wall of defense. It's going to come crashing down. And you can imagine what the nation of Israel must have thought. God didn't say, you march around and the walls are going to fall down. He didn't say that. He said, you march around and you shout when I tell you to shout. Could you imagine what they must have thought when all of a sudden, and, and here, think about what you would be thinking if you were marching around those walls for all those days. This is dumb. This doesn't make any sense. This is stupid. We can't even talk. We can't say anything. And then we've got to do this again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. This doesn't make any sense. And can you imagine what they must have thought when they heard the rumbling and all of a sudden those massive walls on that massive city came crashing down right in front of them? Could you imagine what they must have thought? And yet here they are, able to run right into the city because God had given them the victory. Turn over to Psalm 60. God's going to do the same thing to his enemies and to the enemies of a Christian. Not physical enemies necessarily, but spiritual. The God of heaven can easily and certainly will, I believe, break down all the opposing power of his and his church's enemies. Psalm 60 and verse number 9. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, which hast cast us off, and thou, O God, which didst not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Amen. No one can stand before God, physical or spiritual. Strongholds of sin, Pride, lying, disobedience, vices, wickedness, they can all be broken down and defeated when we turn to God for our help. But it takes a realization that the Christian life is a life of routine. Just do what you're supposed to do in God's way. Christian life is a life of discipline. Christian life is a life of obedience, and the Christian life is a life of faith. When you live it like that, you can have the victory. There's a minister in London who had worked for the past nine years and had great success in, those, in that nine-year span. And he got up in his church at a meeting that they were having with a bunch of other churches, and he said this. With the first church over which I was called to preside, I spent four years in what seemed an almost fruitless ministry. I think I preached as fervently then as I preach now, and I prayed for God's blessing with all my heart. I looked for success and week by week announced times at which I would meet inquirers, but none came. I prayed till prayer became an agony within me. Still, there were no converts. 
On one Sunday evening, I made a special effort to win souls to Christ. All through the preceding week, I pleaded as though I were pouring out my very soul for a blessing on that service. I prepared as far as I knew how, simply with a view to conversion. On the evening before the service in question, I went into a field at the back of the chapel, and again, with tears, I besought God to save some. I gave out what I, th I gave out that I would meet inquirers at the close of the service. Not one came, either then or afterwards, as the fruit of that appeal. Eight years ago, I preached the same sermon in what was then my new sphere of labor, and 97 people joined the church who traced their conversion to that one message. The minister concluded by saying this, I think that in my four years of fruitless labor, the Lord was enabling me to bear present success and getting me in a fit mind to endure the large measure of prosperity with which I have been cheered for the past nine years. Sometimes in our Christian life, we feel like we're making no progress. Sometimes in our church, we feel like we're making no progress. I know a lot of you are involved in knocking on doors. A lot of you are involved in getting the message of the gospel. You've invited people. You've given the message of the gospel. And people just don't come. Does that mean that God failed us? Does that mean that you're not doing it the right way? Does that mean we need to find better methods? Does that mean we need to lower our standards and you know, make this place like a nightclub to get people to come here? No. This means we need to keep doing it in God's way. And oh, if, you would, if you'd have a band up here, you'd get a lot more people coming. Oh, if you just, you know, drop your standards, you'd have a lot more people coming. Look at you foolish Christians who are doing it the old-fashioned way. You're still dressing up in a shirt and tie for church. Who does that anymore? You just need to put on a collared shirt and a pair of skinny jeans, and you'll get people to come. Right? But we're walking around Jericho. We're just doing it in God's way. Why? I don't know. God told us to do it that way. We're just going to keep doing it that way. Will we always see success the way the world measures success? Probably not. But you know what? Don't matter what the scoffers up on the wall think anyway. They're not going to be around long. And one day when we stand before God and day seven hits, we walk around that wall seven times and judgment day rolls around. They're going to be the ones who are wishing they were with us. And I'm not trying to say that we're better than everybody else or anything like that, but all I'm saying is keep doing it. Keep living for God. Keep waiting on him. Keep obeying him. Doesn't always make sense. And there's people within our own, maybe not our own church, but within our own ranks who, why are we doing it like this? Doesn't make any sense. Don't, why, why, why. God said to do it this way. Why do we need to change? Times change. God stays the same. Why do we need to change with the times? We don't. I think we need to be relevant, but we don't need to compromise to do it. Just keep marching. Just keep walking around those walls. But the silence, yeah, that's what God said. Keep doing it. Keep going in circles. I don't know why, but you know what? I do know this. Victory is coming.
Victory is coming. What does that look like? I don't know. But you know what? The Israelites didn't either. They didn't know the walls were going to come crashing down. They didn't know they were going to be rolling right up in that city and taking whatever they wanted. And I don't know what victory looks like. But I know it's coming. We just keep doing it in God's way. Keep living the Christian life. Christian life is a life of routine. Sometimes it seems like it gets boring and old and why we, why we always have to do this. Christian life is a life of discipline. It takes effort to live for God. It takes effort to serve Him. It takes effort to please Him. Christian life is a life of obedience. Just keep doing it. It's a life of faith. Because I can't see the end right now. I don't know what the finish line looks like. But I know it's coming. And one day, one day, it's going to be proven that the Christian life is a life of victory. And that's where I want to be when we get to the end. I hope you'll join me. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the promises that we have in your word. What a tremendous testimony we have from the Israelites who just marched because they were commanded by you to march. What a great victory you gave to them. God, I know there's people in this room this morning that are fighting against things spiritually that they would love to have victory over. Pray that you give them victory over those things. We have things as a church that we're fighting for. I pray that you give us the victory in those things. I believe the heart of every single person in this room this morning is that we want to please you. I pray that you'd help us to do it. I pray that you'd help us to put things in place that'll put you in the place that you belong in, that you can bless us, that you can give us the victory. And God, if a decision needs to be made this morning, I pray that it would be so. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed.